We'll hear argument first today in Volvo Trucks North America versus Reader Simcoe GMC. Mr. Engler. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Sixty-six years elapsed between the passage of the Robinson-Patman Act and the judgment of the District Court in this case. In that time, there is no reported instance of a finding of a violation by a seller operating in, in, in an industry like this one, in which a sale is made to the plaintiff distributor if and only if it has already secured a contract for resale to a particular end user. Courts have long understood that mere offers at different prices cannot violate the Act because it requires two purchases, and that successful purchases in winner-take-all bidding cannot have the requisite effect on competition. To affirm the judgment below would open up new vistas for application of the Robinson-Patman Act where it has never been applied before. This case you, is — You concede, though, don't you, uh, Mr. Engler, that the uh, language of the statute covers uh, the, the conduct here? Very much the opposite, Your Honor. Well, you have a person who's engaged in commerce, who's discriminating in the price that they offer to different purchasers. Now, I, I know your argument about the structure, but the actual language does seem to encompass the activity. Well, I, I don't agree with respect, Your Honor. With respect to mere offers, offering a price to different purchasers is not covered by the statutory language. With respect to the sales-to-sales -sales comparisons, there is not the requisite effect of such discrimination Well, just to get to your first point, the, the statute talks about discrimination in price between different purchasers. And, and not different actual purchases. But it doesn't this, seem it's that much of a stretch to cover would-be purchasers, potential purchasers. Well, except that back in 1947, this Court in the Bruce's Juices case made clear in the early days of the Act that it takes two completed sales to violate the Act. No one sale can violate the Act. Even earlier than that, the Third Circuit in the Shaw's case in 1939 laid down that rule, and it's been an accepted rule of Robinson-Patman Act jurisprudence for that entire time. And it is a natural reading of the statute and in accordance with the general principle that the statute should be construed consistently with the larger body of antitrust. But may I not ask, isn't it true that each of the parties here over a long period of time was a purchaser? I mean, the, the uh, uh, reader was a purchaser, was he not? Or they were a dealer. Yes. So they were a purchaser. And were not the other people who purchased from Volo also purchasers? Y yes, with respect to the sales, so the sales transactions. Well, with respect to the sales to sales transactions in which there were two over purchases. Over a period of time, you had two purchasers. Yes, but the, the statutory language is the effect of such discrimination must be to harm competition in one of the And the discrimination ways. occurred over a period of a couple of years, as I understand it. No, Your Honor. This case was tried on the basis of several discrete transaction comparisons. It was not tried on the basis of any systematic study of every offer to reader and every offer to well, if these are uh, ordinary automobile dealers who sold out of inventory, would you agree that they were — you had two purchasers? Sure. So the, the whole whole point of your case is they're negotiated transactions? The whole point of the case is, the, is twofold. Each transaction is one in which there is a purchase if and only if there is already a contract for resale. So that when there is an offer compared to a purchase, you don't have two purchases. And when you've already got the contract for resale. Well, by I mean, you say that, but the title goes to the dealer. The dealer makes the purchase. I mean, you, as, as I understand your answer to Justice Stevens and, and also your answer to the Chief Justice, uh, if these were automobile dealers that sold from inventory, 
there would be a cause of action if you extrapolate this, these kind of facts. One, one, purchase, one dealer being discriminated against vis-a-vis another dealer. If, if the requisite effect on competition is shown, yes. Well, and, and if there was a sale to the other dealer, you, you would say that there had to be a sale to the other dealer. There have to be two sales. Right. Not, not, just an, not just an offer to the other dealer Correct. at higher yeah, price. But there would be sales if they were selling from inventory. I mean, there would have been a preceding sale, and the sale would have been at differential prices as between two dealers. And that's the typical Robinson-Patman yeah. case. That's the case in which there is a potential violation. The case in which there is a sale by the purchaser, if but only if — I'm sorry, the case in which there is a purchase by the purchaser, if but only if it already has the sale, is the case in which it can't have lost that sale in competition with a favored dealer because of price discrimination, which is what the statutory language requires, which is why the Robinson-Patman Act — Suppose you had a case of two Volvo dealers, and the scheme is, as this one, specially ordered goods uh, with competitive bidding, but over a substantial period of time, one dealer, we'll call that dealer the favored dealer, consistently gets higher concessions, and the other dealer, who ends up being the plaintiff in the case, consistently in that same period gets lower concessions. So we don't have a picture of what you call mix and match, but two dealers, one consistently getting higher concessions, one consistently getting lower, and therefore missing out on sales or making sales at a very low profit. That, too, would be out of Robinson-Patman, if I understand your view of the statute? Yes, I think that's correct. That's a closer case to what the statute was designed to cover than this case. But, yes, that, too, would be out of Robinson-Patman. You go back to the language. Are you finished with that answer? Go ahead and finish. Enough for now, Justice Breyer. Yes. In respect to the language, uh, how do you read it? I, I think it's ambiguous. To discriminate in price between different purchasers of commodities, do you read it different purchaser? to discriminate in price in respect to that commodity that is purchased. You read it to discriminate in price between different purchasers of commodities, i.e., the commodity, the particular item, the commodity there refers to the particular item in respect to which there is the discrimination. How do you want to read it literally? I just want your literal reading of the statute to, I agree with you, 60 years, nobody's questioned it. I agree with you. Policy reasons very strongly on your side. I agree with you, at least hypothetically, but for the particular language. So look at the phrase and read the language as you want me to read it. Well, two two different issues, Justice Breyer. With respect to the two-purchase rule, if the statutory language is ambiguous and if it can be read to say purchaser status is enough, then I think the principle stated in all of this Court's cases that the Robinson-Patman You're giving me a policy argument. I don't want a policy argument for the moment. I want to know what you're saying is that the word purchaser means purchaser in respect to the particular commodity, this one that is purchased. There has to be a discrimination in price. And there's a textual and what reason. You're hearing, I think, is well, this person, the, the dealer, bought other items in respect to which there was no discrimination in price. 
So he is a purchaser of that commodity. You see, commodity could refer to the kind of thing, Volvo trucks, or it could refer to the particular thing, this truck. And I want to know how you read the literal language. The textual answer to your question is — That's all I want, the phrase — Textual the, answer. The phrase, the effect of such competition ties — No, no, I'm, I'm sorry, the effect sorry, of such discrimination. The effect of such competition discrimination. conceded in this case that there's the effect on the competition. There are two separate things. There is the truck that was purchased by the disfavored dealer. In respect to that, he wasn't hurt in the sense of the statute because — even though he got a lower profit margin, that doesn't count. I'm not focusing on that. I am focusing upon the truck that he did not purchase. The reason that the disfavored dealer did not purchase that truck is that he had a rival. Maybe there's only one case of it, but there's at least one. He had a rival, the favored dealer, who got the purchase. He got the order from the customer and then ordered the truck. Now, in that one, I take it, the problem is that there was no purchase by the disfavored dealer. Correct. All right. But what you're hearing is, so what? He was a dealer whose line of business was to purchase Volvo trucks, and therefore he is a purchaser of the commodity, namely Volvo trucks. Well, and there was a discrimination, namely the offer was discriminatory, and there was a harm to competition. In the, in the uh, Robinson-Patton sense, his rival got the sale. Uh, I still question so I whether — the textual answer. Okay. I still question whether the — under the text, the effect of such discrimination was the requisite effect yes, on competition. Yes. The effect of such discrimination is that his next-door rival, in effect, got the sale. Do you want to say that isn't enough? Yes, I do want to say that isn't enough. And, Justice Breyer, first of all, I think Let's assume I don't agree with you about that. No. Mr. Englund, I thought you were relying on the succeeding phrase, where either or any of the purchases involved in such discrimination are in commerce, which seems to require that to discriminate in price between different purchasers, where either or any of the purchases involved in such discrimination I thought that's what you were hanging your hat on, to say that there has to be a discrimination in particular sales. I, I think the statute read as a whole compels that conclusion. But if I'm wrong about that, and if there is enough ambiguity to admit of a different conclusion, then the principle comes into play that cases of ambiguity in the Robinson-Patman Act are construed to be more consistent with the well, overall — of course, if we can go back to the language, uh, it's between different purchases of, of commodities of like grade and quality — and that seems to me to indicate that uh, Volvo trucks generically uh, must be looked at, the, the, the policy with reference to Volvo trucks generically. Suppose one dealer always got a 10 percent discount, the other dealer always got a 20 percent discount over a period of time. Well, Your Honor, I think everyone, including the lower courts in this case, agrees that you don't look at the goods generically. You have to look at their characteristics to determine like rate and quality. And I would actually think that the it has phrase purchase by purchase to determine like greater quality. Yes, every Robinson-Patman case there's ever been has been purchase by purchase at the level of right. sale That's from the manufacturer to the dealer. Put your finger right on it. My question is so obvious that you're not giving me an answer. Every case for 60 years has been on your side of it. Those judges, though, were, must have been reading some language, 
And how did they interpret that language? That's all I'm asking you, a very literal question. It has nothing to do with policy or anything. And all I want you to do is take the statute and read the language so that it is possible for you to win this case. Okay. okay. I'm a manufacturer. I'm reading the statute. Mm-hmm. I have to give a price on a particular deal. Mm-hmm. I realize I can't discriminate in price between different purchasers of like grade and quality uh, where the effect of such discrimination may be one of the prohibited effects. I say, okay, can I give a different price to one dealer or to another? Yes, I can, because it says different purchasers of commodities of like grade and quality. It is a specific instance of a purchase, a specific instance of discrimination. The very words of the statute are what judges have read consistently to compel that result. May I ask this question just to get it in my Supposing uh, Volvo had a policy of granting everybody a 20 percent concession, and they had, except reader, and they always granted reader just a 15 percent concession, and you had the same sales pattern you have here, would there be a violation of Robinson-Patton Act? Well, again, I think the answer is no, Your Honor, although that that would be a closer case than this case. This case was tried on the basis of the sales to both. Yes. Yes, that would be a closer case, but it it might fit the policy of the Act, but it's a very poor fit with the words of the statute. It depends on how, whether you regard the purchase as a single, each single transaction as a separate purchase, or if you look at a course of dealing and say that over a period of years, the favored dealer is one purchaser and the disfavored dealer is the other purchaser. Why can't you look at the pattern of dealing by automobile deals over a period of time? That, that would be the argument in favor of an expansive reading of the language in the hypothetical example to cover that case. But it would not be consistent with the general policies of antitrust law. It would be consistent with the literal language, wouldn't it? If you treated the purchasers as, as look not at just individual transactions, but what they do over a period of years, just like any other, any ordinary automobile dealer. Two dealers in this market, one in Arlington and one in Bethesda, are both purchasers, even though they may not compete on the same transactions, aren't they? Uh, no. Um, the, the effect of such discrimination has to be to harm competition with the favored purchaser. And if, if all transactions are hermetically sealed from one another, yes, the buyer might like a better price, but it's not complaining about the effect of such discrimination on competition with the favored purchaser. To, 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 to put this point in perspective, imagine that Volvo raised its price to every so-called favored purchaser. But you would case. agree in my hypothetical there's discrimination, but you'd say there's no injury to competition. There's no injury to competition that is the effect of even if you got an competition with the favored purchaser. That is even if you got an expert to come and say, well, these two dealers are in the same relevant market and there's a, a likelihood that customers go to the favored dealer. That would not be a prima facie. Oh, if you, if you have that evidence, yeah. that, that there is a likelihood that in a pattern, customers have gone to the favored dealer, that's, that begins to come within the statutory language in a way this case does not. And there is no customer testimony, no evidence of diversion to any favored dealer in this case, no evidence that reader lost profits because of the price given to any favored dealer, only evidence that if reader had gotten a price, it would have better price, it would have made more money. Well, every dealer can I understand that. your argument that there's no injury or impact on competition for resale of the trucks. What's wrong with looking at the statute as being concerned to protect competition to be the Volvo dealer? In other words, 
you know, they're, they're competing, if, if Volvo's restructuring its approach, they're competing to be the favored dealer, even though they don't compete with other Volvo dealers directly. The, the main problem with that interpretation of the statute is it takes the last phrase of the statute and makes it no longer a limiting phrase. It essentially makes all price discrimination illegal. And this Court said in Brook Group and has said in, in many other cases that it is not, not all price discrimination is made illegal by this statute. It does require the requisite effect on competition. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you. Mr. Hungar. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The fundamental question in this case is whether a plaintiff who did not purchase goods for resale in competition with a favored purchaser can nonetheless establish all the elements of a Robinson-Patman Act claim by picking and choosing from among different aspects of unrelated transactions. The position of the United States is that the answer is that the dealer didn't didn't purchase goods for resale in competition with other Volvo dealers. That's exactly what they do every day, isn't it? No, Your Honor. When they purchase the goods, they are not in competition with any other Volvo dealer. By definition, they have the sale. And so that's the point. Competition just on a day-to-day basis over the years, over a period of time, trying to get business. In a different sense. They may be in competition with others. the same relevant market, of course. In a different sense, yes. But, but the point is the price discrimination does not occur when there is any competition. And therefore, the requirements of the Act are not satisfied. You're assuming they're not in competition on a continuing basis. They're only in competition for one isolated transaction after another. No, Your Honor. The, the, they may be in other senses and in, in, in seeking other customers in, in some sense in competition with other Volvo dealers. But at the point that the price discrimination occurs, they are not. And therefore, even in the, in the, in the, uh, in any of the examples offered by the respondents in this case, they don't show, uh, price discrimination between competing purchasers, which is what this Court in the Morton Salt case and in other cases have indicated the Act was aimed at. And, and as Mr. Englert indicated, that is why in the 70 years since uh, the Robinson-Patman Act was enacted, we haven't seen cases like this because it is understood that the Act has no application in these circumstances. Two, two, de- two dealers within 10 miles of each other. Uh, customers frequently go to both dealers to check out to get the lowest price. A dealer A gets 10 percent discount routinely, dealer B 20 percent discount routinely. Over a period of time, would there be a violation of the Robinson-Patman Act? And all the same structure as this? Yes. Well, the answer is no, but only for, I think, one of the several reasons why, in this case, the answer is no. That is, in your hypothetical, they are, in a sense, um, and I'm assuming that there might be direct head-to-head competition and just that the offers are different or affected by the, the differing differentials. So there is, there is competition between the purchasers, and there is discrimination in offers, although not in purchases. So there is still the two-purchaser requirement, which is not satisfied in that circumstance. There is, the reader is not purchasing in, uh, assuming it loses the sale to the other uh, customer, it's not purchasing in competition with a favored customer, a favored dealer, because it's not purchasing at all. Just so but, but I would point out that even if the Court is unwilling to go that far in this case, that you don't need to go that far that to, to resolve this case and to reverse the judgment below for the other, uh, because of the other failings in the uh, plaintiff's case here. And the, and the main failing there is that Volvo trucks and Reader Simcoe do not compete in the same market for sales of Volvo trucks. 
Is that a correct statement of the record? Well, I don't think I'd put it that way. I think, again, they don't compete at the point at which the price is For any particular sales. Right. Yes, and that's right. Other than there are the two examples of what have been called head-to-head competition, in one of which there was clearly no price discrimination, in the other of which our reading of the record is that a reasonable jury could not have found that there was price discrimination. And even if there were price discrimination, that one instance standing alone could not support a finding of a Robinson-Patman Act violation. Why not? Why not? The Highland, is that the one? Because there's no substantial injury to competition. In other words, a — I mean, you could go on that. I see that. But is there any authority for that, that just one — one head-to-head competition, he bought the truck. Let's keep that out of it. So imagine they brought the truck, they resold it, and the market structure is such that there probably is quite a lot of competition, in fact, with other dealers, and they lost at least one sale. That's not enough to prove an injury to competition? I don't think so, Your Honor. I mean, certainly — What's the authority for that? Well, certainly the Morton Salt inference wouldn't apply because there's no substantial — That's a different matter. That's a different — what I'm saying, what authority is there? Have there been cases in which that was not viewed? After all, let's suppose the dealers are located geographically in about the same place, and it's logical to think they'd go for the same customers. They overlap. Their territories are close. Logical to think people shop around for trucks. And we have in the record one item where they — one instance in which they found the customer, and he said, yeah, I did. I did go and shop in both. I lost — the disfavored dealer lost the sale. Well, I don't — Authority. Well, this Court's cases and the lower courts have understood the Act to require a likelihood of a substantial injury to competition. Well, they say this is our evidence that it is likely, just what I said. But one sale is not substantial, Your Honor, I would submit. And moreover, in this case, of course, they don't have that evidence of the close dealer with whom they are in repeated competition for the same customers. And so I don't think we have that case. We don't have a substantial injury, even if you assume — even if you read the evidence the way they do with respect to the one head-to-head competition. And it's important to understand that this — the two-purchaser rule is not the only flaw in the judgment below. The Act requires causation. That is, the price differential must cause the injury to competition. Here, it's not the price differential that causes the injury in the sense that the Robinson-Patman Act addresses. The Act is addressed to the situation where they're competing head-to-head. The favored purchaser has a competitive — a relative competitive advantage, which allows them to offer a lower price and thereby either get the sale or reduce the profits of the competing purchaser. But that's simply not the case here in these sales-to-sales or offers-to-sales competitions. The fact that some other dealer in some other transaction with some other customer got a better price has absolutely no relevance, no significance, and no effect on Reeder's ability to get a sale or make a profit in its transactions with an unrelated customer. So the causation element that's so crucial under the Act is absolutely missing here. And, in fact, Reeder's interpretation would simply read the injury requirement out of the statute. They would say whenever there's a price differential, we've been injured because if we had gotten the lower price instead of the higher price, we would have made more money. So there's per se injury. The Morton Salt inference is converted into an irrebuttable presumption contrary. Mr. Hunger, do you agree with Mr. Englert that even if you could — you had a case based on two dealers, one consistently gets higher concessions, one consistently gets lower concessions, and they're in roughly the same market, that even that would not be covered by Robinson-Patman? And they're in repeated head-to-head competition for the same customers. One gets — they're getting differential offers. I'm not putting the head-to-head in. Just 
one on his sales gets lower concessions, one higher. That's I agree that that would not be actionable under the Robinson-Patman Act. The reasons why, the reason or reasons why depend on whether they are in head-to-head competition or not. If they're never in head-to-head competition, then they're never in competition. Let me just clarify comp- Justice Ginsburg's question a little bit. Supposing over a period of years, one dealer always got 15 percent off and the other one always got 20 percent, and there's testimony they're in the same relevant market, so presumably customers can go to either one. What more do they have to prove? to establish a prima facie case? They have to prove at least what Morton Salt said, which is price differentials between competing purchasers. And the, and the way the purchasers were competing in Morton Salt well, was that they were both competing. I understand the Morton Salt case, but do, do they, I'm assuming they're in the same relevant market in which customers patronize both of them from time to time, but they can't identify that Mr. Smith was here on this day and, and the other dealer on the same day. But just an overlapping in the, in the same competitive market, would that not create a prima facie case? And if not, how much more would they have to prove? Well, in this market, they'd have to show that they were purchasers. Well, they're both purchasers. They're dealers, in my hypothesis. Each of them buys 100 cars a year, and, and one of them pays a higher price than the other, and they're in the same relevant market. What yes, right, but they, they haven't have purchased – they haven't purchased in, in connection with the uh, well, price discrimination. They for the purpose of reselling if they can find customers. Well, right. But as Justice Scalia pointed out, the, the Act clearly – does not apply to offers. It requires purchases. Well, I understand. And it In my requires case, there are sales. purchases by each of them at different prices. What more do they have to prove other than that they were in the same relevant market? They have to prove that they were in competition with each other and that competition now, was the injured by the in the same relevant market enough to prove they're in competition with each other? No, Your Honor, because it's not enough to prove they're in competition with each other. They have to prove that they are in, that the price differential injured or was likely to injure substantially that competition. And that is not true if they aren't competing in connection with the transactions no, but in if which you're the price discrimination at, occurs. If you're looking at broad market competition, you don't normally require them to identify competition on a customer uh, on a per customer basis. The only reason we get into the per-customer basis is that we have this odd so, not an odd situation, but the situation with Volvo trucks that no dealer ever buys in, unless he's already got a, got a sale waiting. But in Justice Stevens's hypothetical, we, uh, as long as the market was identified and as long as they were buying, we wouldn't require anything more to show competition, would we? May I answer? Sure. Your Honor, if I understood Justice, Justice Stevens' hypothetical to address the situation where, as in this circumstance, they are not competing at the point at which they actually purchase no. the product. If, if it were the traditional Robinson-Patman Act case where they purchase for inventory and are both trying to sell the same goods to the same customers, then, yes, the problems that we've identified here would not exist. Thank you, Mr. Hunger. Thank you. Mr. Phillips? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. It seems to me there are three issues that have been posed, by the way. Both this case has been argued by the parties on the other side and has the questions have arisen. The first one is whether or not there is competition in this particular case. And Justice Stevens' question seems to me to pose the issue about as starkly as it can be. Is it not the case that under traditional standards of Tampa Electric, this Court's decision there, and a host of other cases that we define competition by reference to whether or not Entities compete for the same uh, — with respect to the same product in the same market, same region, 
And if, there, if that's what you have by way of competition, then you look to the next level, which is to see is there price discrimination and is there injury to that competition. What, what evidence was there of competition here? Did you bring forward instances where they both bid for uh, a sale of, of uh, special trucks to a, to a single uh, repurchaser? Well, we clearly did that with the, with the Highland case. That was, that was clear. But the testimony was uncontested on both sides. Both readers, reader testified, we compete against other dealers every day. And Volvo's witness testified. Not other Volvo dealers. Yes, other Volvo dealers. I thought the Volvo policy was if you had two dealers competing for the same sale, they gave the same discount to each each dealer. Well, th- that's not the competition. That's the question is whether there's discrimination. The question is, do Volvo dealers compete against other Volvo dealers in the first instance? And with respect to that, the testimony was absolutely clear. It's in the witnesses for Volvo are quoted in our brief at page 8. Explicitly say, we compete on a daily basis in the region and the district, Volvo dealer to Volvo dealer. Now, there's a separate but there's issue. Never, but in those situations, there's never two purchases. There's, always one, there's only one completed purchase. Well, again, there are lots of situations where there are two purchasers. Again, you go back to the to the four specific transactions that were identified for the 102 sales, 55 percent of the sales between 1996 and, and uh, 2000 involved, I mean, sorry, 1998, involved direct comparison sales where we purchased from Volvo and one of our competitors 200 miles down the road and on interstate highways 200 miles down the road is the same as next door. And we, we purchased exactly the same product and we got a significantly lower concession. Well, but that was for a resale to, to that was for resale to different purchasers. To be sure, it was nobody's to resale buying to two. Purchasers. Nobody's buying two trucks from two different purchasers. Right. Any more than anybody's buying two cars from two different purchasers in the ca- in the classic inventory situation. Yeah, but it's it's very hard to compare those two sales because they all depend upon the the special uh, features on the trucks that are ordered by the particular individual. And also how, you know, how much of a hard bargain that individual is driving. I, I don't know how you can compare a sale to one, one, one person with XYZ features on the truck with a sale to a totally different person with ABC features on the truck. Justice Scalia, that was precisely the defense that Volvo made at trial. They put it to the jury. Remember, it has to be like, kind, and quality. We're required to demonstrate that, that the truck that we're getting a 10 percent discount on and the truck that they're getting a 20 percent discount on is exactly the same like, kind, and quality of truck. And, and that was their defense. And our witness meticulously I commend the record to you if you want to read it, but it meticulously examined each of those trucks and showed that systematically for 102 sales, they sold the exact same truck to a dealer down the road with a significantly better price than the truck they sold to us in order to implement the Volvo vision and drive my client for out. For resale to a different purchaser who may have been in a better position with regard to the negotiation than any of your customers. But whatever that person's position was vis-a-vis its customer doesn't affect the relationship between Reader Simcoe and Volvo and that individual and Volvo. There has to be a level playing field. That is is precisely what Robinson Patman is about. Why is it unreasonable? Why does it violate the principle of Robinson Patman? And why does it destroy competition for Volvo to say, We'll make whatever discount it takes to get the sale. And if this dealer needs a 20 percent discount for this sale, 
but this other fellow over here only needs a 10 percent discount to make that sale, we're, we're, we're going to have a differential discount. Why? I don't see why that harms competition. Because the, the, it wouldn't necessarily on an episodic basis. But what you have in this case is substantial price discrimination across time, which this Court held under Morton Salt triggers an inference of competitive injury. Mr. Phillips, the problem that I have with, with uh, even accepting your theory is what the other side calls the mix and match quality of your evidence. That is, you say, here's reader, disfavored, and here's someone else, favored, but it's not consistently the same someone else. And for all we know, someone else could make a case saying, we compare ourselves with reader, and we say, oh, there was that sale seven months ago where they got a whopping discount and we got a much smaller one. You're not, you don't have the same favored customer. You're picking uh, from a series of sales, and we don't know uh, how manipulative this proof is. I mean, we don't. Well, I mean, putting aside the fact, Your Honor, that I think that that's essentially a jury question. I mean, I do think both sides get to put on the, 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 the evidence that shows that there's been discrimination and that there — and then we know what the market consequences will be. But if you look at Plaintiff's Exhibit 104, which is in the appendix to the Court of Appeals at 577, and you look down that list, you will see that there — where, where they're specifically talking about Reader Simcoe, and it has — and it satisfies its 28 percent of its overall objective in 1999, and then you go through the testimony of Reader Simcoe's co-owner, and he identifies each of the four or five competing entities that were the beneficiaries of those — of the price discrimination of those sales and the 102 sales that were the basis for liability. And their percentages for their objectives during the next — during 1999 are 71 percent, 81 percent, 97 percent, 107 percent, 92 percent. Those are — those are huge differences. Mr. Mr. Phillips, when you lose — if I may when, — when you lose a sale, it's because Volvo didn't give you a big enough discount. It's not because they gave another Volvo dealer a bigger discount. That's today, Mr. Chief Justice, to be sure. But tomorrow, when I go to the next dealer, to go to the next purchaser, the reason I didn't get that sale was because I didn't have enough capital to have the same quality of salesperson in place to make that sale. Oh, sure. But, I mean, that's — I mean, long term, of course, Volvo can terminate you as a dealer tomorrow. Well, it and can't. Under the contract well, and under state Arkansas state law, it can't. Well, but, but it, under the Robinson-Patman Act, it can't. As long as it doesn't discriminate on the basis of price. And the price, classic right. case that the Robinson-Patman Act is directed to is when you lose sales because they're giving bigger discounts to other sellers. And that's just not the case here. But it, it's not just sales. It's always been lost profits just as well. And, and, and if we are paying more, we're losing money vis-a-vis -vis our competitors. And then every day after that, we're competing with our one arm tied behind our back because we have less money. And, and is there any reason to doubt Volvo's that? Volvo's interest may be in as making as much money off of sales this year, and they may not be terribly concerned about whether you as a reseller are making enough profit to last three years or five years. That's true. But we know from the record that Volvo's purpose in this enterprise was to eliminate 50 percent of its dealers that, and to do so by using price discrimination. That's a, that's a broad Robinson patent 
principle you're arguing for, that, uh, that a, a, a seller dis- a, such as uh, Volvo has to make sure that each of its distributors makes the same profit? Oh, no. And if, sure, if, no, of if, course not. If it works its system in such a way that one of them is making less profit than another, it's — it's libel? No, there, there are two elements to this, Justice Scalia. You first have to demonstrate that there's discrimination. And, and the way you demonstrate anti-competitive discrimination is to show that there is a consistent pattern. It has to be substantial discrimination over a substantial period of time. If we're trying to cut deals on a daily basis, presumably today you've got to deal with a customer and I'll give you a 10 percent, and then the Chief Justice got a deal tomorrow and I may give him 12 percent. But two weeks down the line, the, the situations ought, ought, will likely be flipped out. You're not going to find where you have 55 percent of your sales, 102 sales involving $250,000 plus of, of, of sales differentials to be the basis for the claim that there's price discrimination in the first instance. you have any instance where you, you made an offer to a buyer, assuming that you'd get the kind of a break that Volvo gives to other dealers? All right. You made that offer, and the buyer says, yes, I'll take it at that price. And then you go to Volvo, and they won't give you that. Oh, sure. We, we had thousands of those. Where examples. you made the offer to the buyer. Yes. And the buyer had agreed to buy it. Sure. And where, you, where we, well, I had agreed to buy it. We, we had an, uh, uh, clearly there was an understanding. Our, our salesperson thought that if I can get this discount at this rate, I can cut this deal. Went to, went to uh, Volvo, asked for that rate. Volvo said no. Didn't get the deal. This the that happened no. literally more than a thousand times. The testimony on that is is rampant. And the reason we don't make more of that, Justice Scalia, in this particular case is because the jury verdict is based on actual sales. There's a very clear fidelity to the two-purchaser rule in the way the jury verdict was rendered and the way the Court of Appeals affirmed it. That said, I, a lot of this discussion about, you know, is that two-purchaser rule in its most strict version the right way to interpret the Robinson-Patman Act? Our view is it's not. But we don't have to it's get not there. The, the, the reason, I thought for about 60 years, the words, different purchasers of commodities, it forbids any person to discriminate in price between different purchasers of commodities. And right. I, now, you have to refer, I, as soon as I ask the question or start getting into the language, I, I forget the statute, and it's so complicated that I'm giving you time to think about it. <laughs> and, and so think of those words in your mind. Right. It's, a, it's, it's forbidden to discriminate in price between different purchasers of commodities. Right. Now, I had always thought, and I think the Court's decisions bear that out, or the absence of decisions, that the words discriminate in price between different purchasers of commodities meant you can't discriminate in price between different purchasers of the item or items in respect to which the discrimination of price exists. That's what I thought it meant. And it seems to me that was the general understanding in the antitrust bar. That was the general understanding of the courts. And either it's not permissible to give such an interpretation. I don't know why it wouldn't be. It's literal. Or there's a good policy reason for not doing it in respect to the policy. And in respect to the policy, what worries me about the broader interpretation is suddenly doing what Volvo, forbidding Volvo from doing what it probably wants to do here. If it wants to get rid of its dealers, it's because it wants to compete better with other brands. And that means lower prices for consumers. 
though individual dealers might be hurt. So if I'm trying to read that law consistent with 60 years of history and the basic purposes of the antitrust law, I guess I would might favor your, your opponents in this. I'm exposing my entire line of thought. I'm trying to protect interbrand competition. Why? While at the same time not being, un, not being uh, uh, unfair to the purposes of Robinson Patman. And therefore, I'm reading this fairly literally as it's been read. So what's your response? Well, I, I guess the difficulty I have, Justice Breyer, is understanding why you don't think we are, what we have here, precisely different purchasers of commodities. I said, I said, they, in res, the problem for you is that in respect to discrimination between the item or items that in respect to the purchase of the item or items in respect to which the discrimination existed, insofar as there were items or items purchased, there is no discrimination. At least there is no discrimination that, ha in terms of uh, the injury of the statute, creates that kind of injury. In respect to instances where you have a strong case of the right kind of injury, there was no purchase defined as I just defined. I, I, I apologize for being. No, that, let me deal with the latter. I, I will say there, there are some items where your client bought the truck. Absolutely. When he bought the truck, he got the sale, although he earned less profit. Put those to the side. It's difficult Let's for me to do that, Justice Breyer, but Let's I understand. Let's focus on the items. <laughs> Let's focus on the items where he didn't get the sale. Right. When he didn't get the sale, there was no purchase of the item or items from the manufacturer in respect to which the discrimination existed. Right. Okay? Now, it's that second class. That's what you want me to focus on. Yes. That's fine. As long as you accept that the first class is a distinct one, and as far as I'm concerned. Of course it's distinct. But, and it totally makes my case as far as I'm concerned. Oh, well, you have a. I, I realize you may disagree with me on that, but we'll start there. <laughs> but I just want to be clear that that's a se completely separate analysis. Then it seems to me what you, what you have to go back to is the kind of analysis that Justice Stevens was saying, which is that when you're talking about different purchasers of commodities, there is no reason to be so focused on the, on the identical transaction rather than recognizing, particularly in the context of a dealership arrangement where you have continuous relationships between the, between the, the manufacturer and the dealer, where you have this enormous disadvantage to the dealer who has already sunk you know, huge amounts of money into this and is essentially at the whim of what is now a monopoly seller, a monopoly, a monopoly seller, and under those circumstances, it makes perfect sense to say, look, if I'm going to systematically keep getting 20, 10 percent discounts where my competitor 100 miles away is always getting 20 percent discounts, that's a situation that this statute seems clearly aimed at dealing You're with. You're not at the whim of a monopoly seller. You mentioned to me just a little while ago you've got a contract with them. You can put in that contract whatever you want about pricing. I have a five-year contract that's already in place. So at least for the five years, I'm pretty much at the whim of my — unless I want to breach the contract. Which you should have written a better contract. Well, unfortunately, I didn't write that contract, Justice Scalia. But on a misinterpretation of Robinson-Batman. <laughs> what do you do with the uh, policy argument at, at sort of the level of the forest rather than the trees that the antitrust laws are designed to prefer competition in interbrand uh, in the interbrand market rather than intrabrand? and that, therefore, to the extent there's ambiguity, that supports an interpretation that allows the manufacturer to 
strengthen his interbrand position as opposed to protect the intrabrand. I think to make that argument, you essentially have to make much out of the last half of the robinson Act because it's not injury in any line of commerce, which is where I think you would be talking about interbrand problems. It's it's problems with respect to customers of either of them, and it's quite clear, and it's been clear since 1948 in Justice Black's opinion for the court in Morton Salt, that this is designed to, to recognize that when you harm an intra-brand competitor, that that's the kind of injury to competition that this statute was aimed at. And this court reaffirmed that both in the 1980s, reaffirmed it again in 1990 in Texaco, and, it's, and, and notwithstanding some effort to ask the court to revisit Morton Salt at this point, it seems to me that that principle ought to be completely settled at this stage. If there's to be any fix there, it ought to be a fix that's offered up by Congress. To, to go back to then your point, Justice Scalia, I told you first, you have this discrimination in price. You have to show that it's substantial, lasts for a substantial period of time. You get the Morton Salt inference. You then, we still have to show under Section 4 of the Clayton Act that we have actual injury to our business and property. And in this context, it seems to me the evidence is absolutely overwhelming because you have a situation where in 1995 we are next to none dealer for Volvo. In 1995 we're selling 66 cars. We're making $165,000. Volvo implements its Volvo vision, the purpose of which is to drive my client out of this dealership. It engages in systematic discrimination, both with respect to unquestionable purchases on both sides and, candidly, more broadly than that. And the effect of that at the end of the day is that our sales go from 65 to 34 to 18 to 8. Our gross profits drop to $26,327. You compare that to the kind of evidence this, this Court looked at in the, in the J. Truett Payne case, where it wasn't clear that there was really any discrimination involved there. There was no drop in the market. There was no evidence of any diversion of any sales. And even in that context, this Court was unwilling to say that the Fifth Circuit's decision holding that the evidence was flat-out inconsistent or inadequate to sustain the verdict was overturned, had to be sent back. I submit to you the evidence in this case is vastly stronger the jury reached the result that it did. That result was approved in the face of a J- JMOL you, and affirmed on appeal. Yes. Supposing you did have a contract, such as Justice Scalia suggests, in which the manufacturer agreed that at any given point of time you will get just as favorable a concession as any other Volvo dealer could get at the same time. If there were such a contract in place, would the evidence show that it was breached? In this case, yes, it would have been. We, we have evidence that they clearly didn't, because they have a policy of trying to accomplish the same thing and didn't achieve that in this particular case, at least two instances. But you did, you did um, get a judgment on the, whatever it was, the State Franchises Act, and that is not being contested. That's correct. On appeal. That's so correct. that if the question is whether fair franchising practices or whether unfair practices you won a verdict that there was a violation of the Fairness in Franchising Act. Right. We clearly aren't raising the state law issue here. Our argument here is that the Robinson well, Patent on, violation. You won on it, but the difference is that that doesn't give you treble damages. Well, it also has a different statute of limitations, Justice Ginsburg. There are a lot of differences between the state law and the federal claim that we're On that we're limitations, here. one of the aspects of this mismatch is that in one case you went back as much as se- there was a, a seven-month differential. Is there a time frame if we adopt your theory? 
about uh, in which you can engage in this comparison? Oh, of course. You, you, you require the jury to make a determination that it's within a reasonable period of time and that it's in a reasonable adjustment. There's no challenge to the jury instruction on whether or not the comparisons that were made were legitimate in any way. So that's, you know, there's no question that this Court can certainly establish a rule that says certain time frames are either per se good or bad. But that issue is clearly not raised by the way the jury, this jury was instructed because there was no challenge to the instruction in this case. It's also not disputed now that these were goods of like grade and quality. Not disputed that these are goods of like grade and quality. You know, how many states have these uh, fair franchising laws? Are there any states that don't? Oh, I'm sure there are some states that don't. I think there are about 30-some states that do, as I recall. Your argument that focuses on the dealer's profits, I guess, doesn't depend upon you losing those sales at all. I mean, if you, you had made all the sales, but you still thought you should have gotten a bigger discount that would have allowed you to make more money, you'd have the same argument, right? Well, I think if we had gotten all of those sales the first time around, we would have ended up with the profits that would have allowed us to make the sales. Well, no, you just go back and look again seven months or a year down the road, and if somebody else was getting a bigger discount, if you had gotten a bigger discount, you would have made more money on those sales, and then you would have had more capital, and you'd be able to be a dealer for a longer time. Well, I think at the end of the day, what we're talking about is essentially a jury question. Were we entitled to say these were lost profits, the margins were reduced, we didn't have as much money, that interfered with our ability to make sales in the future period, because you have a complete before and after documented uh, history in this particular case. Seems to me that's a jury question, and the jury found in our favor. You suggest something very, to me, quite interesting, but it would be quite departure, I think, from prior law, but uh, if, you, if you want to go look at this, you know, you, you say, all right, here's what we should be realistic about. It. We're going to be realistic. Realistic, they were only now looking at the cases where they undoubtedly bought the item, but the profit was lower. There's no purchaser problem. Right. But they got a lower profit. And I think there the mine run of cases is against you that that counts as an injury. That by itself wouldn't count. Yeah, yeah, but it, you know, it shows that they're going to be hurt, that they may be driven out of business. Indeed, the market in the dealership market, whatever, if that's a separate market, which it might be, becomes more concentrated. And uh, the result of, you know, I could make a, tell a little story there that would be quite consistent with the purposes of the antitrust law. Oh. So we follow that approach in this case and say goodbye to Morton Salt. Because Morton Salt, after all, was a case that was quite formalistic. It didn't really look to the injury to competition in a market. It had a formalistic slogan that would, in fact, be a proxy for that. Right. So what do you think of that? We follow your, we follow your advice. We say, uh, okay, we're going to be very realistic in the future. Forget the presumptions. And court, look to see whether competition in the sense of increased concentration through people going out of business will lead to higher prices with the ordinary antitrust proxies there. What about that? I mean, I don't know if you I — mean, I, I, Well, I, I'm, not here to, I'm not here necessarily as a, an advocate for overturning Morton Salt for obvious reasons. I think the answer to your question is — under Morton Salt, we clearly win because we, we probably didn't need to show as much as we did in terms of the impact of this particular discrimination on our ability to compete in the future. I think we were entitled to a, a straight inference of that in terms of the substantial or reasonable possibility of injury in the first instance. But beyond that, you know, you could certainly hold in this case that that Reader Simcoe has made more than enough of a case in order to recover under the Robinson-Patman Act. Well, but fact, we nevertheless — I'm sorry. You, you almost have to show that, but the the, the — Evidence of the head-to-head competition, it seems to me, too insubstantial to support 
liability here. Would you agree? And I think one, I, one, uh, you're, 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 you're opposing counsel says you almost concede that. Well, we, I mean, we don't rely on it. And part of, part of the problem is it's not that head-to-head item wasn't part of the jury instruction. So that we, I can't rely on it in terms of supporting it. If you ask me outside of the context of this case, would I defend that argument? I probably would try to defend the argument, but it's obviously much tougher when you only have one head-to-head. It's completely different when you're talking about 102 sales-to-sales comparisons over years with significant differentials that clearly cause the kind of injury we have here. If there are no further questions, Your Honors, I'll give you back the rest of my time. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Mr. Engler, you have uh, four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The heart of the theory of this case came up in colloquy between the Chief Justice and Mr. Phillips. The Chief Justice pointed out that Reader doesn't lose a sale because of the concession that Volvo gives to the other dealer, which makes this quite different from every other Robinson-Patman case. Mr. Phillips's response was, that's today, Your Honor, but our future ability to compete is impaired. Well, that's very similar to the evidence this Court referred to as weak in J. Truett Payne. The Court didn't go all the way and say that that wasn't enough to give rise to damages under Section 4 of the Clayton Act, but, the, but all nine justices agreed that such evidence was, was very weak. The Fifth Circuit on remand threw out the jury verdict, a case that arose in the same posture as this case. And there is not, as, as we said in the reply brief, Reader is complaining about price, not price discrimination. Now let me say a word or two about the record. Mr. Phillips says the Volvo vision was to get rid of dealers and to do so through price discrimination. That is a leap of faith that Reader asked the jury to make a trial, but there is not an iota of evidence connecting Volvo's interest in making its dealer network smaller and more efficient to price discrimination. That's entirely a leap of faith. Mr. Phillips says an inference should be made. That's not the kind of inference we usually allow juries to draw in antitrust cases without some evidence. The the evidence was actually that Reader's biggest customer, New Highway, which was 82 percent of its business, was bought by a Memphis company. So just to point to Reader's before and after sales is really terribly misleading in terms of causation here between so-called discrimination and the uh, uh, decline in Reader's business. The so-called 102 sales are four transactions. There's one 77 truck transaction in New Highway before it was bought by the Memphis company and 25 other uh, trucks in the other three transactions. They are all cases in which all Reader did was take its own completed sales and compare them to sales by some other dealer in some other state. Reader wasn't competing for the sale to that dealer's customer. That customer wasn't competing for the sale to Reader's customer. So it is, as Justice Ginsburg's questions pointed out, completely a mix-and-match approach. And Bill Heck conceded that there were times when Reader got better concessions than other dealers. If you have a company that doesn't engage in uniform pricing, as Volvo does not, it's not going to be hard for any plaintiff, whether it's Reader or Reader's competitor, to come up with instances in which it was the so-called disfavored dealer if it is admissible to compare transactions to completely unrelated transactions, which is what the proof at trial in this case was. Thank you. Thank you. I ask you if you have a minute left. Is your central point that there was no proof of damages or no proof of injury to competition? Both, Your Honor. They need both. They need uh, I know 2A. They need both. Which is your principal argument? My principal argument is under 2A, but if I fail on that, I think they fail under Clayton Act Section 4 as well. The principal argument that there's no injury to competition? That was the effect of such discrimination, yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.